Welcome to Detoxicity. This is a podcast in which I try to change the narrative around masculinity a little bit and allow some progressive voices and some interesting voices, diverse voices, to come into the picture. My name is Mike Joseph. I host and produce this show, and I thank you very, very much for listening and for supporting from the bottom of my heart. It means a lot. Now, if you enjoy this podcast, I hope that you are subscribing to it. If you aren't, please press the subscribe button on wherever it is you're listening to it, and uh, that way you'll get episodes on demand when they come, uh, which is usually on Wednesday mornings. I also certainly ask that you uh, spread the word. Uh, Please rate the podcast on whatever platform you're using to listen. Um, Make sure you leave a comment if you have something nice to say or if you have something constructive to say. It doesn't all have to be nice. And by all means, tell your friends, tell anyone who you think might get some creative juice or inspirational juice or just would uh, you'd like to listen to this please spread the word uh, however you can i am on social media if you would like to follow me i am on instagram at detox pod guy uh, my twitter is on hiatus for a little bit it will come back but it is tis mike joseph feel free to follow me on either of those platforms there is also facebook.com slash detoxicity and if you have a comment you can email me detoxpod at gmail.com I am always on the lookout for new guests, so if you know somebody who you think has an interesting story to tell or something to add to the overall conversation around detoxifying masculinity, please reach out to me via any of those platforms, and certainly if you yourself would like to be a part of this podcast, please reach out, let me know. Once again, I thank you for listening. So, I find my guests on the show a lot of different ways. Sometimes it's a cold call or a cold email. Sometimes they're people I know. A lot of times they're people I know. And other times they're people that I meet through other people. Uh, Such is the case with this particular episode's guest. I am talking to Dom DiMaria, who is a musician and a New York City housing representative. That's an interesting combination. And uh, I met Dom through Jared Peace, who I interviewed in episode 99 just a couple weeks ago. You might want to check that one out. I was at a show and Jared was playing drums. Dom was playing bass. Dom had multicolored hair, had sort of a cool bass playing technique, had a pride flag on the guitar case, and uh, is super talented and seemed like somebody that would be cool to talk to. So uh, I reached out and uh, here we are having a conversation. Um, As I mentioned, Dom is from New York City. Uh, Dom is a musician, comes from a nice Italian suburban Long Island family, and we talk a little bit about that during our conversation. Uh, We talk about working for the city and working in housing, which, as you might imagine, can be equally rewarding and frustrating. Uh, We talk about the struggle keeping a family together when you have sort of opposition Uh, political and personal opposition to people that you are close to, something I can relate to very, very much. And Dom is a first for the Detoxicity podcast, and Dom is this show's first non-binary guest, and we talk about uh, Dom's non-binary journey uh, over the course of this podcast as well. So settle in and listen to Dom's story. Hope you enjoy. Uh, So my name is Dominic DiMaria, Dom DiMaria, either way you like it. My pronouns are he, they, but lately they're any and all. I respond to that thing over there. I respond to she. <laughs> I think my partner called me it by accident once recently. I'll, I'll take them all. And I am a musician. I am a songwriter. I am an engineer. And generally, my bread and butter is playing behind people and helping them shine. The back of my head is famous on a lot of early Instagram rappers' accounts, like the early days of Instagram. The back of my head was on all their accounts because I'm at the board. They're doing their thing. 
Right. So I was an early adopter to, to Instagram. I was in the early days of it working as an engineer. And also these days I work for the city of New York. I actually work in housing. I work with people who have housing vouchers and their caseworkers, meaning social workers, help them find apartments by dealing with landlords and realtors of New York City, which is just the funnest of times. As oh, I would imagine. imagine. And we get the gratification of helping people find apartments. And that's the thing that keeps me going and keeps me here and keeps me doing what I do. So you can have multiple loves, just one of them can pay more, you know? That's right. Amen to that. Do you get satisfaction out of doing what you do for work? You're in a noble profession for the housing thing. I mean, being a musician is a noble profession too, but working in housing is actually tangible where you can see people who are unhoused get houses. Yeah, it's hugely inspiring when it works. And it is just the worst defeat when it doesn't. And it's a thousand little cuts when we get to see bureaucracy and red tape in action, whether it's coming from these programs and how they operate, whether it's coming from the would-be neighbors of people just trying to move into a community. As we saw recently in Chinatown, people, it's not, it's not just the government keeping people in these places. It's not just the real estate business, although they're probably the biggest actor, but it's also the people that would be their neighbors, keeping them from getting out of some horrible place like a shelter, God forbid. Uh, and just moving into an apartment like you and me had. What made you decide that that's something you wanted to do for a living? Well, long story short is that three, four years ago, I was asking people if they had a minute for the environment. And I asked the right person and she gave me a job doing something that was not that. So I, I have a background in canvassing and campaign management for nonprofit. And I'm really happy to be away from that and into <laughs> the government world, at least for this time. Who knows what I'm going to be doing next, but... Basically, that came from, and I don't know if you have experience with something like this, but <laughs> having one love, usually in the arts, usually something that is amazing, fulfilling, maybe doesn't pay the best, or maybe it's amazing and fulfilling and you want to be fulfilled in another way. So you find yourself switching to another thing entirely, having a major career change, or just doing something in tandem with what you're doing now. Surprisingly, you see a lot of people doing it, even at the highest levels of government, which is shocking. But that's what I did. I went to school for music, and I worked in studios and freelanced and hustled. Turns out I hate hustling. I am through and through socialist, uh, and I cannot hustle for shit. Uh, can we say shit? Can we curse? You can here? say can whatever you here? want. All right, I'm just making sure. I figured. You, you know, you, you cuss to your heart's content. You strike me as a cussing kind of guy. Mm -hmm. uh, not that that has any weight anymore, right. uh, which is kind of a beautiful thing. I think we should be post. We should be post language entirely. We should be post language at this point. I'm, I'm going to digress for a second. I was thinking about. Do you know the show Shit's Creek? I love the show Shit's Creek. I watched all of the show Shit's Creek. Oh, awesome! So if there's this show that exists called Shit's Creek, why can't people just say shit? On the why is shit still a bad word? Obviously, there's mm -hmm. a difference in uh, context and spelling, but it's a pun, right? It's a play on words. Mm -hmm. So it's they, like, yeah, it's like at first you got to be clever about it, and then sooner or later, people's threshold for it will get a little more forgiving as time goes on. Unfortunately, I'll take the position where this is progress because ten years ago, this would not have been on the air in any capacity. Sure. Shit's Greek. They would have been like, no, here's the script. The script is great, but you cannot, you got to change that name. So even in that, even that little small victory, uh, and I'm going to say victory for, for the word shit. I think she, she's beautiful. She's been with us this whole time. She's contributed so much to, to us and our lives. I think it's a victory for her, you know, and I think that it's a good thing in the long run because we're not ready for S H I T 
fully spelled out shit as a society, considering what the most conservative among us are kind of into these days. They're the ones kind of holding us back. And that's the hill I'll die on. That I think I think progress comes incrementally. Uh, can you tell I work for the government? That but I think also, progress comes incrementally. You're also very correct. I think as someone with a little bit of age, I, I think back to things that society was about 20 or 30 years ago and then look at them from a 2022 perspective and it's like oh there actually has been tremendous progress but it's come in very short not even short bursts it's come very slowly and progressively as opposed to closing your eyes and waking up the next morning and it's like shit changed <laughs> Whether literally shit changed yeah yes exactly. the politics of shit <laughs> literally they changed oh my god yeah no you're right yeah i you're think too quick uh, for me dom it's good that I do not feel quick at the moment. I, I don't know how many years you've been, you know, doing this living thing, but yeah, with social change, it seems like incremental change is kind of what has to be done with political change. If we're changing policy rather than changing minds to right. kind of go hand in hand, but yes, incremental change does kind of have to happen. Whenever we see policy changes in in housing, they're usually the result of small incremental change, which isn't always great. It's actually pretty awful right now because we we know what has to be done to help house people who are unhoused. Right. As a society, we have the tools to do that. And we just kind of choose not to. Which is amazing to me that there is so much wealth in this country. And there are so many people who are not even wealthy by the average person's standards of wealthy, but like almost print money. You were talking about the Bezoses and, and, and the Jack Dorseys and Zuckerbergs and so on, so on, so forth. Bill Gates, whoever. They have more money than any, than they have more money than states have. And to create better conditions for some of the disadvantaged people in this country would be a piss in the bucket for them. <laughs> and yet they choose not to. Yeah. If I think there's a lot going on with that narrative and I agree completely that they should do something, but to get somebody who's accumulated that much wealth to suddenly have that insane change of heart, there would need to be some just downright next level Dickensian bullshit happening. Some Ebenezer Scrooge, like supernatural ghost visit you, change your entire worldview shit. Because we can't really rely on that. I hope we can. That'd be, that would fix a lot of problems. Maybe we all just dress up as ghosts and hang out with Bezos <laughs> on Christmas. I'm down. I'll be a ghost. Can't act for shit, but I'll do it. A lot of people who work in this stuff, who work in community organizing, who work in government, will tell you that everyone is part of the problem, or at least everyone involved in the real estate world is part of the problem. Why can't we put stricter rules on people in real estate? It's because everybody wants to believe that they can uh, own a little piece of this. And a lot of people do. There's no test you have to take to own property. And when you own property, you own the means of someone living their life. Mm -hmm. So you probably wouldn't be even the least bit surprised at the kind of people we deal with. While some are just lovely landlords and brokers who actually do want to help people. Some actually do, believe it or not. Some are completely neutral about it, which is way more than we could ever ask. Because if you're neutral about it, you're getting the benefits we have for you monetarily, and you're housing a person. Right. Deal done. But then you have everyone else in the world. Uh, people who are near and dear to me as family and friends, who really just you know don't see the need of deprivatizing things and 
want to be able to own as much as possible and don't see an issue with that. They don't see an issue with withholding resources from people as a means of money making. And, you know, everyone from people who work in the White House, everyone from the next in line to president, we're including Nancy Pelosi, we're including Democrats, they all are involved in real estate in some way. They have someone, a loved one or themselves who benefit from it on a high level. So everyone on a low level, rather than saying, hey, we should put some stricter rules in place so people can exploit other people, there's, they're too busy wanting to be part of that system. And it comes back to narratives we've been told our whole lives about hustling. And I mean, this, this has something to do with masculinity, this thing we're doing here today, right? So mm-hmm. I think the two are inseparable. Mm-hmm. T- telling people that they shouldn't be so greedy. I think masculinity has to be checked sometimes, and that's a way, a way to do it. That's right. And I want to get deeper into that, but I want to roll back slightly to canvassing because I am very curious, Don. <laughs> the, the two cities that I've lived in as an adult have been New York, general New York City area and Boston. And both cities, I feel like, have canvassers up the ass. And yeah. what is it that... Why... <laughs> This is going to sound so terrible. No, hit me with it. Why would somebody want to do that? (laughs) Oh, I love it. No, that's a great question. We ask ourselves that every day. And by we, I mean back when I did that. So I... I'm going to start by saying that I'm glad I did it and I learned a lot from it. I learned a lot about my city and I learned about other cities by doing it. And that being said, the work we did, the money we raised, it did go to these causes. I actually got to see the work firsthand. That being said, why would someone want to do that kind of job? Because they need to make a major career change and they need to do it quick. I, I know people who I worked with who went into lots of other fields after that, from corporate stuff to nonprofit stuff to what I'm doing now to to managing an iconic gay bar. You know, I, the people I've worked with are all over the map. And at the end of the day, we learned a lot of human skills doing that job, the kind of skills that are really hard to pin down and hard to put into words. And I will never call them street smarts because I don't believe street smarts is a thing. I don't believe that book smarts and street smarts are a dichotomy. I think intelligence in general is a hoax. But yeah, we we did it because we all needed to make some kind of change. I think that's the through line. And I did it for two and a half years because... It, it it thickened my skin in a way. A lot of things that thicken your skin are not constructive. And a lot of things that are constructive do not thicken your skin. And I needed a little bit of a kick in the ass. Mid-20s. Everyone in their mid-20s could use one. We all probably had ours at some point. Maybe we had a few. But this was this was such a challenge that I'm glad that I did it. And I rose to it. And people around me rose to it. And there was a lot of negatives that come from working on what's ostensibly a company that's run like a pirate ship, but that's not exclusive to canvassing. A lot of sure, people have of worked in startups like not. that. So it had that startup energy. And the worst of it wasn't the canvassing. The worst of it was working for a company that is run like ostensibly a pirate ship. Right. It's funny because I worked retail for 10 years mm-hmm. in New York city. There you go. You probably got to know the city in and out. Right. And here I am thinking about canvassing and you said two and a half years and my eyes bulged, but I worked behind the counter or on a floor in New York City for 10 years. And I suppose canvassing is a form of retail. I guess the difference with retail is that people are voluntarily coming into a place to be sold things, whereas 
if you're just kind of minding your business walking down the street, you're not necessarily expecting to be stopped and accosted. But there are a lot of similarities there in that yeah. you're dealing with an impatient public. That's probably the biggest one, just that you're dealing with impatient mm -hmm. people who don't necessarily have the time to do the niceties of, of humanity. To your point, I would say that we actually have an easier time given what you're saying, because we're not worried about the people who don't talk to us. We're only worried about the people who do talk to us. So in fact, we're actually not dealing with any single person who doesn't want to be part of this conversation, who doesn't want to be part of what we're doing. As you could probably tell, we get good at spinning things. We get good <laughs> at taking one thing, and together we get over it. Uh, because I could spin this in a way that makes you say, oh, yeah, we do want the same thing, which is another one of those life skills that is honestly kind of tough to obtain and maintain. Um, and maybe you got it somewhere too. But the one thing I'm happy about is I, I never really had to deal too heavily with anyone who didn't want to be dealing with me because we got such thick skin that those people weren't even on our radar. Got it. Got it. And I think I'm thinking back to your street smarts comment. And when I was growing up, I had a relative who was very much there's book smarts and there's street smarts. Street smarts is really just, I think, awareness and common sense, empathy those things sort of fall under what most people would consider street smarts. And I think that growing up in an environment like New York City, just as a general rule, gives you a level of empathy and an awareness of your surroundings that's much different and much more involved, much more present than someone who grows up in South Carolina or Utah or Wyoming or Missouri in a lot of cases. And I, I'm curious what your growing up experience was like, because you've clearly turned into a person that, given what you've told me about your family already in just the brief time that we've been talking, that is not necessarily aligned with the lines that you had, mm -hmm. that you were parroted in your youth. Yeah, that's, that's a great point. Where you're from has a lot to do with it. Um, the TLDR is that <laughs> all these things, compassion and common sense, these things you mentioned, oh, they're incredibly important. I, I can't stress import how important they are enough, which is why I don't think they should be put into the box of street smarts. Because the second they're put into the box of street smarts, people can use that as a negative. People can say, well, well, this doesn't matter on a resume. How, how do we measure this on a resume when it comes to the highest levels of education? These things do not matter. And we see that across the highest institutions that taking these incredibly important ideas and giving them a label means that we can now use that neg label negatively. Consequently, when we take book smarts and we give that a label, people could do the same thing. Again, back to conservative talking points, people saying that anyone with this, this, and that skill, uh, they don't really know what life is like because that's just book learning. That's just academic liberalism or I'm sure there's a better horrible term for it. <laughs> yes. But the, the point is, it's I, I, don't, I think drawing the dichotomy itself is the problem, actually. I'm I think those are all awesome skills to have, of course. With any luck, I have them too, but it's, it's just labels. So to your question, yeah, my background is actually that my, my parents were working class from Brooklyn and Queens. My dad was actually from Italy as a baby, came over here with his family. They came over here for a better life, as a lot of the people do. Came through Ellis Island, and there was just this really big community of Italian-Americans ready to help receive him and help him grow which is a beautiful, amazing thing, I think. Similar with my mom, had this strong community around here in Queens. 
My dad's from East New York. My mom's from Woodhaven and also Howard Beach, depending on the timeline. And the stories from that time are kind of crazy, but at the end of the day, they were what we'd call working class people who were lucky enough to exist during an economic boom and also smart enough to capitalize on that. So I'm I'm an extremely privileged person. I'm from a upper middle class family, Long Island. Well, Queens, Long Island line. So you walk two blocks here in one, you walk two blocks here in the other. Sure. So I grew I grew up in kind of both, but have to check that I am a Long Island kid who just ended up working and living in New York until until they became a New Yorker somehow. Because there's a lot of New York out there. There's there a lot is. of the remnant. There's a ton of the remnants of it out there. You'll see it. You probably know. Yeah. yeah. Same with same with Jersey and up north and down south. You can see a lot of New Yorkness around. I, I kind of had those instincts when I, you know, left, came back, left, came back, eventually put down roots in the city. And stereotypical New Yorkness. I I wonder how many people outside potentially listening to this could even tell what a difference is between Long Island and. New York City. <laughs> right. I'm I'm speaking to too small of an audience right and, now. And it is, I mean, it's a huge, 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 huge difference. <laughs> it's a suburb of New York. Uh, everywhere has their suburbs. In this case, Long Island has the connotations of a rich, wealthy suburb. And a lot of that time is true. Not always. There's plenty of parts of Long Island that do not fit that description at all because it's a huge place. It's two New York counties. And people think of like the Hamptons. There are people who know about the Hamptons and don't even know what they are, or where they are. They just know it's a rich guy thing. Right. That's not the part of it I'm from, but I had a pretty good upbringing. I got to go to a Catholic school, which ugh, that, that was that's another, another podcast entirely. But, you know, no one had a perfect TV. It wasn't life your and, choice. Or yeah, was it wasn't. It was not my okay. Although I did choose religion when I was younger. I did choose Catholicism when I was younger. Not just when I was a kid, but when I was actually a teenager, I made a conscious choice that I'm going to be involved in this community. Because when you're a kid and you find something like community, both as a musician, as a young musician, and as a teen who has no idea what's going on with my brain, my body, all of this stuff around me, the world, finding a community of tight-knit people who have emotional intelligence, or at least try to and express themselves and support each other, Oh my God, it's, uh, yeah, people, uh, I, I know I'm describing a cult. I'm very conscious of that. <laughs> I mean, many people would say Catholicism is a cult. No, it's it's got too much history to be a cult. It's something much worse. Point taken. So what was your unlearning point or relearning point or just education point in terms of becoming the person that you are now? You grew up upper middle class on Long Island, Catholic upbringing. How does that translate into the person that you are now? Because if I look at you, if I experience you, if I talk to you, you're not an upper middle class kid from Long Island that grew up Catholic. You know what I'm saying? There's more. Yeah. We all have more to us than that. Yeah. How did I keep growing after the age of 18? Yes. <laughs> How, yeah. Thank you for I, asking I, questions yeah. in more eloquent fashion than the host is doing. So I, I, I guess just getting out of your comfort zone where you're from goes a long way. I think that's something that everyone probably thinks of doing, dreams of doing, eventually does, or does by accident and sees the value in it. So do yeah. you think? Do you think that everyone actually dreams of that? I've been wondering about that lately. Because some people seem really complete in their lives. And I'm like, don't you dream of being, whether it's being in a more diverse culturally place, 
or being in a place where you don't experience the same 10 people every day. And I, I think some people just don't actually dream, dream of that. Uh, yeah. I, I certainly did. Mm -hmm. And you clearly have, but I, I don't know that that's as universal as I personally would like it to be. Sure. I think I kind of caught myself and realized the same thing you're realizing because I, I added on the end there, people accidentally get out of their comfort zone sometimes. I might be part of that category because really? as, a, as a kid, I think complacent's a great way to describe. Uh, I mean, not that I was like super into authority and everything. I I was a you know kid growing up during the emo years on the East Coast. Like I hated authority. The Bush years, great for music. Most people would disagree with me because of all the God Bless America shit happening around that time. Uh, but you also country, had Kanye. We also, you also had Kanye. That was a little bit after I was in high school. So he was coming up as I was leaving high school, going out into the world and figuring out what the hell. So when I heard Kanye, like, yeah, that was like, here. that's one of a million examples of being like, wait, wait, music can be like this too? Okay. Okay, cool. And it takes a lot of trial and error to get there. So as a teenager, I was not like, I want to be somewhere else. I didn't have my I want song. I want to see what life is like outside of this horrible place because I was in like a pretty chill place, actually, as a lot of people are who live comfortably. And I didn't know what I wanted to do for a living. I was going for a degree in like physical therapy. That was the plan because I was like, well, that's a job people make money in and that will make my parents happy. So I guess I'll study that. I'll start doing that in university. And after getting out of that place, even though I was in a college, a university that was not that different, then where I'm from, it was was in New England, so not the most diverse place in the world. There were even <laughs> speaking people of the from, choir, yeah, right. Do you have a background there? I lived in Boston for eight years. Okay, yeah, I actually lived. I lived in Boston for uh, two, two and a half because I went to Berkeley up there. Shout out to Berkeley. Uh, There's lots uh, of Berkeley alumni in the last mm -hmm. hundred or so episodes of this podcast. Oh my god! Shout out to Berkeley. There's so many other things you could be doing with your life. <laughs> yeah, no, love my time there, but. Yeah, I was going to just regular university studying. Here's what will make my parents happy. Because I, I didn't have my own opinions at that point. I was just like, I just want to like chill. And and that's it. <laughs> like, what, what else does a 17-year-old uh, kid want to do? But I, I got complacent to the point of being like throughout high school on a deeper, more emotional level as being like the ride or die down for anything friend. Sometimes being down for anything might have its drawbacks and just kind of existing in the background and not really being sure what I want, but just being the funny kid. That's kind of on the periphery. If I'm thinking narratively, because I, I watched too much TV as a kid, like a lot of us did, then I don't have really my own story arc. I'm like, I could be the funny sidekick character. Plus, I'm a chubby guy at the time. I don't relate so much with Guy anymore, but right. I also kind of do. It's it's depending on the deck. We don't talk about this a lot, but some people just kind of relegate themselves to the sidelines and think like, I, I don't dream big. I don't know what I want to do yet. I'm a kid, literally. I'm 17. So eventually, when you start to get out of your comfort zone, you start to see more of the world. I think people should do it as dramatically as possible. And I think I still have more of it to do. I think we all do. So you're, you're in the world. You're doing your thing. You're doing soundboard stuff. You're doing music stuff. Not yet, but oh. not right away. Okay. Um, one of the major changes I had was going from studying at that university, studying physical, like pre-physical therapy. My undergrad was going to be in psychology. And I was thinking, like, oh, maybe I could switch to this. Maybe I could switch to that. I'm kind of not feeling this physical therapy thing. My, my first change was I'm going to go to music school. And rather than considering that a detour along the way to what I am now, I think everything has its place. Everything has its purpose. I, I don't like the idea of being like, oh, those few years were a mistake or anything like that. I learned... So much that has helped me connect with so many people while I was studying this stuff. Studying music helped me connect with so many artists outside of the music school world. 
here in New York, here in my communities, who I could then, I could back up, I could help record them, I could play in their band, and I can at the same time, unlike a lot of people I meet in the music world, be pleasant to hang out with at the same time. Wait, did you say like or unlike? A lot of unlike. Well, unlike people who are new additions to the music world, people right out of school, people who are a little on the younger side who are ready to come network and everything. I see a bit of a difference not to be like, back in my day, these kids these days. But I do that all the I, time. Don't worry about it. Yeah. You see a difference in someone who's been around the block a little bit and that they just treat people with a little more humanity and they go a little more slowly and they get to get to know the people they're working with as opposed to people right out of school. And and I talked to actually recently other people in very different fields. I talked to someone in medicine who agreed with me completely. People right out of school or new to an industry will go a hundred miles an hour for no reason. Because they have this this hubris. And I don't know if it's related to youth or because you get gassed up thinking that, oh, I'm hot shit. And you still have that. I'm going to change the world mentality. I, Mm. I think humility is what ends up taking the shine off of that hubris a little bit. And it turns you into uh, a more relatable, a more compassionate person as a general Mm. rule. Not all the time, but I feel like that's normally the arc Mm. of what happens. So glad they started teaching us at a young age how important humility is. As young young men. No, they didn't at all. Um, I'm like, I don't know. Maybe there's something (laughs) in our age difference that... uh, Oh yeah, my generation all about humility. No, God. I don't know which generation you put yourself in. Um, I am very Generation X. Very Gen X. Okay. I am right there in the um, older-ish millennials. I'm 31. Gotcha. Um, but I'd like to think I'm with it, as the kids say. I know of TikTok. No, no, that's <laughs> like, no, TikTok's awesome, actually. Like, uh, it's weird how it's become this catch-all for everything that's new at the moment. I kind of hate that this one particular thing is a catch-all for anyone above the age of 30 who, because mm. like, it's people are doing cool shit on it. Like, people have done cool shit on literally everything. People tend to do cool shit when you hand them something. So I, I think a uh, shout out to anyone who's, has a tool and does something creative cool with, it. Shit with it yeah man yeah i don't even know what we're talking about you're going from becoming a physical therapist or wanted to become a physical therapist to mm-hmm. going full bore into music yeah. and interacting with other musicians yeah yeah though time in school loved boston although there was not the most diversity in the world in fact it was not enough at all but berkeley if you're at a place like that if you're at a school where people come from around the world to go to whether it's a music school or not, you're you could you might convince yourself that Boston is a diverse place by accident. So that that was a weird that was a trip. But it wasn't until I came back to New York and worked in studios, took the weirdest gigs I could possibly take as an engineer. That's where I started I, I think growing as a person. Consequently that's where I got all the best stories out of because being a freelance audio engineer in New York and in the surrounding areas, it's a fun time. I'm sure you have heard some wild shit. I've heard, I've heard, and created some wild shit. I have, I have added wild shit to the world. Hey, nothing I hope wrong you with have that. too. Yeah, yeah, but that's if I'm gonna have to place a point on it, that's where I felt myself start to become an adult. I'm hoping that a lot of people start earlier, but for me, having a little bit more independence and experience and being outside of the college world was just another step in getting outside of my comfort zone, and I ended up building community with people. As a result of that. And not even needing Jesus to do it. 
community seems like it's really important to you. Was that something that was instilled in you or was it something that you just realized at some point? I was a teenager, maybe even younger when I started realizing the importance of it. I, I guess I could give some credit to the people around me because I, there was quite a bit of community around, uh, even when I was in, you know, elementary school, my parents would get involved with school events all the time. And I saw that as like, oh, it's a normal thing parents do. And I know it's not now. So I think I think I have to give some credit where credit is due to being raised in a community of people, not just a collection of houses. Amen to that. There's the it takes a village it does. Theory, which not I, just not just to raise a child, not it, it takes, takes a village. Everything. It, it, I'm all about everything. the village. Yeah. yeah, I love it, man. So, in terms of your journey through masculinity, when was there a point when you consciously decided to buck against traditional gender norms, or is it something that you've always felt but never knew how to articulate until a certain point? Yeah, consciously was much later in life. I'm here I'm here for all all people who lived a certain way and then way way too late in the game decided, wait a minute, no, cuz like it's so much harder at that point the longer you live. It can be vastly more difficult to self-actualize. For me, I was 27. I don't think that's too young, but I don't think that's too old. I'm happy for this generation of of people who I think are going to have more opportunities than I did to see in, in themselves what they actually could be. Um, I was about 27 when I literally had a realization like, oh, wait a minute, I'm non-binary. And I need to find a label for it or something. But basically, I just know I'm outside the gender binary. And there were a ton of things leading up to that that I could point to. And after you crack your egg, so to speak, you find so many things that seemed completely innocuous from your childhood and onward. So I am super lucky to have had a support system since high school, like three friends plus my my twin brother. I have a twin who I'm uh, still in contact with all those people. And we were the tightest group in high school. And those are all men who are not hung up on masculinity. Perfect example of that. My mom picking up me and my brother from a friend's house where we were all there. We were on the front lawn of my friend's house. We were chilling. She comes and picks us up. We say our goodbyes and we just all start hugging because that's what we do. And we get in the car and my mom is like, is everything okay? <laughs> she was like, yeah. He's like, do you, so do you normally like hug? Like, I guess. Yeah. I guess we do. That's one of a few like seemingly nothing memories that later right. would be like, oh, like turns out masculinity comes in small packages sometimes and breaking it can seem like such a small thing. And then you realize like you did it. And I'm making, uh, because, making yeah, the sorry, I'm making the faces that I'm making, not because I view that as abnormal, quite the contrary. I am I'm a big hugger, but I had to think about that for a minute and like, wow, do people still see that as not masculine behavior? And then I thought back to members of my own family and I'm like, okay, yeah, there are people who still think if you're physically intimate with another guy, that mm -hmm. there's something effeminate about that. Would that be to this day? Probably. I'm not close yeah. enough to them to know what their 2022 outlook is, mm -hmm. but yeah. it was certainly like that when I was growing up. Yeah. It's amazing too, how culturally I come from a culture that's very touchy feely, but also very massive, a lot of machismo. Right. Uh, I come from Italian culture. 
So I come from men kissing men on the cheek, mostly in a family setting. And man, some of the Italian music we listened to growing up, when you go back and you translate it, machismo is very important to the fragile male ego across the world, but especially in Italy. Not to say that it's this place where everyone is super fragile. It's a country like any other. But I noticed some ideas that translated super well from the country that my, I guess, ancestors came from versus where they ended up, where these things are actually in common and they kind of complement each other for better or worse. And one of those things is that men will always feel threatened by emotion, unfortunately. And they'll feel threatened by their own emotion, by the emotions of people around them. And even the idea of declaring that you're weak has to be a dramatic thing. One of my favorite Italian songs that any New York Italian knows, or God forbid, people outside of our little bubble, a song called Ti Amo, Umberto Tuozzi is the singer that made it most popular, I think. And he, that's the version we hear at all, heard at all the like family parties. At big events, there would be a little dance, like there'd be a DJ or something. There would always be like a slow dance to that. It would just kill the vibe. But I, I do kind of love this song. And once when I got older or found a translation of it, I was like, this guy sucks. <laughs> this guy just does not take any ownership of his own emotions and is just blaming this woman for all his flaws. Like, it's, is it my fault I'm a man? Is it my fault that I, I'm weak because you are so beautiful? Like, no, you probably just, like, you probably won't even do the dishes. Like, dude, just do the fucking dishes. Like, it's not that big of a deal, man. That, that's the vibe I get from some of these songs when, when, when I look back at, at them. And lo and behold, that vibe is right at home here in the States. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are American songs that fit right into that paradigm 100%. Mm-hmm. Um, we we love the idea of the song that's been written a million times where it's like, this woman is dangerous or should be stayed away from because I went out with her like once and she didn't want to, she wanted anything serious. So she probably like went out with some other guy eventually, probably a few other guys because she has like, you know, agency or whatever. God forbid. And then horror. like, and then like, yeah, she's so dangerous. Run Around Sue is the example that got me really thinking about this because there's a song called Run Around Sue. I don't know yes. if it's familiar. Yes. You know it. Italians fucking love that song. I think it because uh, it was recorded by an Italian. I don't even know if it was, and that doesn't even matter to us. After <laughs> as long as he sounded kind of Italian, maybe he sounded kind of like a Sinatra or like Louis Prima. We dug the shit out of it, and still do. And I thought we were done with this as a society, or maybe move past it. And then one of my favorite songs of last year, "Spoken Out the Window." Yeah. Saying how? Yeah, sorry, I'm not going to say this. But yeah, oh I, might, God, I don't want to have to pay Bruno and, and Anderson any money from this podcast. Yeah, they, they have enough of it. You know, that's not a bad thing. Just they have enough. Yeah, but that was my favorite song from that album. And it's the same freaking song. Yeah, really, no agency. Just this woman is responsible for the lamentable state of my life at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I did nothing wrong, <laughs> um, and now I'm yeah. going to give myself lung cancer. <laughs> probably swallow a fly too yeah exactly if you're smoking out the window that's that's rough yeah. that's rough i'm so sorry to hear that yeah seriously <laughs> this guy's life must be awful that's, how do you have that much money and success and still find time to write sad songs from other people's perspectives it's, it's amazing they they really got to put themselves outside of their own perspectives which is kind of its own art a lot of songwriting is being an observer i think the best songwriters are not just the ones that can take material from their lives and turn into something but they can either embellish things that happen in their lives and create sort of a alternate universe story or look 
at other people's lives and make a song out of that or imagine situations. Yeah. There's power in that too. I've, I've done that, you know, written songs from other people's perspectives where I'm taking a little bit of myself and making this new character. I'm not going to say I'm as good at it as they are, but it's empowering to do so. It's empowering to take this part of you. You want to explore and explore it to the nth degree via this character. I think across all art forms, it's a beautiful thing to do. So I will say they have talent for doing it. But also, it's like, come on, man. We know you're not smoking out you're the window. You're not smoking out of you're not, That's not window. you. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. What are you drawing from? Yeah, I can appreciate the art that goes into it in a morbid way. Yes. Yeah. So you mentioned that your journey has been really supported and accepted, but you also mentioned in our uh, pre-show uh, uh, written conversation, and you hinted <laughs> at it earlier, that there are some people in your family who are not down with the progress. Oh, uh, yeah. That's a real forgiving way to describe them. I mean, it's um, your family, so I'm not going to cast yeah. dispersions. Yeah. So I'm start- starting off by saying I know they're probably not going to hear this. They don't have the kind of taste that people like you and I have in, in, just in prestige podcast content. <laughs> Oh, you're uh, too kind, Dom. But I, I have a lot of love for my family because you can't have community without family. I, well, right. you can, but I don't. So I I love seeing my, my cousins. They're all over the place, and a lot of them are in New York. Uh, I love a lot of my aunts and uncles. But when it comes to particular people in the generation before me, it seems like a lot of the, and back to the point, back to what you were talking about earlier, European cultures like Italian culture being right at home here in the U.S., despite all the odds. I mean, Italians invented fascism as we know it today. And don't get it twisted. Fascism is what we're dealing with, and it's what we have been dealing with. And it's easy to forget that because we're, it's not as in vogue as it was while Trump was in office to be talking openly about fascism. And people who study lots of theory will say, well, that's not actually fascism, it's authoritarianism. But on the street level, on the internet level, person to person, we are dealing with fascism. And I have people very close to me, loved ones, people who taught me the value of community when I was growing up. Later, you come to terms with the fact that maybe those are not the best people morally. On one hand, you have to contend with the relationship that you had with these people in the past and how much they meant to you. And then you got to think about where you are now and where they Mm -hmm. are now and determine what your relationship looks like with them in the present tense. And I guess my concern is more like in the present tense, how do you deal with that? Yeah. A lot of people had that same question for themselves. We were figuring it out as we went, thanks to that kick in the ass we had around 2016. And trial and error is usually the actual answer. I think a lot of people might agree. Maybe I'll try to coexist with this person at X event, at X setting. Was I living in a house with that person at the time? Maybe, maybe not. I honestly can't remember. But I actually was in therapy in my mid-20s to great effect. This was the Obama years. I was in therapy for my anxiety and for some issues that I had where I would have just spells of panic attacks and anger that I hadn't addressed. And what I learned from that was just not to engage in certain situations. Those situations would later be codified as uh, a chat with a fascist. Uh, So... Honestly, sometimes not engaging is the way to do it. If we're talking about maintaining familial relationships, it gets a level deeper Mm -hmm. because the women in my family, the women in my life, 
are the best. Obviously, I love them. I'm a little biased toward them. They're great. Uh, my mom is probably the strongest person I know. Italian, The Italian mama's boy trope is alive and well. But me and my siblings, our whole lives, she actually was doing the thing a lot of women do, which is keep it together for the family. We see a lot of that, especially in the States. We see it in our own cultures and communities. Keep it together for the family until you can't anymore. And then there's always a can't anymore, unfortunately. Luckily, sometimes when it happens, it's for the best. I'm happy to say that in our case, it was. Not to be too vague, not to overshare. But I will say that when it comes to dealing with the factors in your life, it depends on what kind of relationship you want to maintain with that person. It gets that much heavier when you have a super, super close relationship with someone like that. And it gets that much lighter when you don't. If it's someone that you only see a couple times a year, maybe don't engage because it's going to help you mentally in the long run. I would give that advice to anyone listening, especially if we're getting into masculinity, people who were told to be confrontational, people who were told to fight the good fight, even uh, fight righteously. If, if you're doing it for your cause, how can you be wrong? And if your cause is anti-fascism, how could you be wrong by fighting? Sometimes engaging in the first place is definitely not the right answer. And for God's sake, Keep your heart, keep your, keep your brain, keep it intact. Is there a way to engage pleasantly with someone that you have such diametric opposition to in a very visceral kind of way? Oh, yeah. You might even leave the conversation thinking you changed your mind. <laughs> And that's one of the most misleading parts of it. That's what might keep you saying, I got this, and I don't need to seek any alternate ways of dealing with this. But you don't realize that it might be draining you personally. And that stuff is not worth you being drained. That's super important. I think that people, whether they're taught to be respectful to elders or respectful to parents or other members of a family, they just get shit shoveled on them constantly until they hit a point where it's like, ah, oh, I'm sacrificing my own sanity. Mm-hmm. Are you and, talking about being the anchor in the family, trying to be the one person in the family, keeping everybody informed? And it's not even about being an anchor. I think sometimes it's just about thinking that your place in a family structure is to not rock the boat and to tolerate. Oh, I see. That's something that gets put on a lot of people, especially a lot of women, feminine presenting people, to keep it together for the sake of everyone else. I know that got put on my sisters, for example. I have two sisters. Fun fact, they're also twins. My family is me and my brother, two twins, and then six, seven years later, an exact baby six and a half, two girls. Damn. Same two same two parents. No, there was no sci-fi involved as far as I could tell. Maybe that'll come out later. I don't know. That Maybe is unusual. We'll hear about that in the sequel. Right. If I figure out why that happened, I'll come on for an episode right, two. Right, there you go. But I think it was just random chance. Yeah. Uh, we're, all, we're all super close, the, the siblings. That's awesome. But to, to, to what we were talking about, uh, they, they absolutely did and still do get that put on them, that responsibility of keeping things together, the responsibility of not showing how you feel. And we all handle it differently. Some of us go the other way and say, great, I have this responsibility to keep things together. I have the power to undo it. I have the power to untogether the thing. And I I can see that as just as valid as a reaction emotionally to I'm going to keep things together. I see both sides of that in my family. And I think they're both valid ways to look at something. They're both valid responses to something. Right. As far as keeping it together in the long run, you might have some soul searching to do, but... 
I can't speak to everyone's individual situation and I am not a licensed anything. <laughs> uh, I am, I'm a licensed driver. Fair. Yeah. I'm a licensed driver and I am pretty good at music and I work for the government. So I can't tell you how to deal with your family. Damn. Don't listen to me. Or listen to Dom, but don't blame Dom if things don't work out because one size doesn't fit all. That's right. I'm going to give you a fake Instagram after this. Uh Uh-oh. Too late. I already have it. I want to ask one question before we shut down. What is one thing about traditional masculinity that makes your blood boil? Or what is one thing that you consciously sought to reject (laughs) about traditional masculinity? Shame. Just the concept of it in general. I think an example of that in the everyday would be people have a guilty pleasures. Oh man, my, my guilty pleasure is this one thing. And that one thing is probably a little feminine or a little unacceptable in the masculine paradigm in some way. Example of that for me recently was a musical Annie. I actually, I love, I love theater. I love musicals because uh, I love music. And I was raised hearing that music because my sisters would watch the TV version in the late 90s that all those late 90s kids remember. And I would be in the room and I'd be like, I know the whole soundtrack. I know every second of this. And I know it in my adulthood years, so many years later. And I'm like, wait a minute, why don't I like Annie? So I gave it a listen. And I also looked up some more of the details about kind of the meaning behind some of this stuff, what happens in the stage show, what are the politics of this. Man, I like Annie. Annie's great. <laughs> you listen to Annie like, and uh, you were just yeah. like, this shit is banging. Shit is banging. Some next level shit. <laughs> It's all next life. Crazy stuff happens. Crazy shit happens in Annie that we just don't even remember because it all got cut. It was actually really, like a really purposely pointedly political show. Really? I've never seen the stage show Annie. And I feel like the last mm-hmm. time I saw the movie, I was eight. Yeah. So I have yeah, no that's, recollection. That, that tracks. The tracks. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not even going to like pretend that's why I love it. I love it because the music is cute and it's beautiful and it's well-written. Like, and uh, it gets stuck in your head. And yes, the politics help a lot. That's another story. Anyway, back to the actual thing. It, it's shame. We feel shame in oversharing. O- oversharing is something that women don't struggle as much with as men. I think there's no such thing as oversharing. Well, yes, there is. You got to read the room. You got to read the room. But in, I mean, in a lot of cases. I mean, walk into a corporate meeting and talk about, you know. The let's tremendous- talk about my kidney stones, guys. <laughs> you right. The tremendous hear about what's you going just on? Right. Yeah. But being around enough people who have whether it's men who have gotten rid of those constraints emotionally whether it's surrounding yourself with a lot of women whether it's surrounding yourself with a lot of people outside of the gender binary and people from all walks of life you tend to see that shame is made up a lot of it is socially constructed the more i hang out with women the better i get talking about my medical history and how i could improve myself physically because there are lots of women in my life who are medical professionals or studying to be and I never talk about my medical well-being with with my guy friends. We don't you, talk. You about need this more stuff. queer guy friends, Don. Maybe I do. I've never thought I would hear that. <laughs> well, you know, I have plenty of queer friends who are not guys, and we don't talk about medical history a whole lot. Mental health—that's a big one for a lot of men. Obviously, you've heard this a million times. Everyone listening probably has too. But shame around mental health is very real. Shame around existing in your own skin is very real. I'm a big fat person. I started loving myself later in life. Before that, pretty rough time. Not going to (laughs) lie. Made life pretty difficult. A lot of people could relate probably. That that all comes from shame that we're taught. So when you can finally recognize what bits of shame come from masculinity, where all of your shame comes from, whether it's masculinity or somewhere else, 
you start to do this thing that I think they call not giving a fuck. <laughs> and I think that's growth. That's maturing. I agree with you. I am a personal major believer in authenticity. I think that a lot is lost in life in general, but just speaking to the individual person, I I feel like when you are not presenting your authentic self to yourself as much as possible, there comes a point when you're on your deathbed and you're like, fuck, Mm -hmm. I did this shit all wrong. And I don't want to have that load on me when I'm croaking. You know what I'm Mm -hmm. saying? Yeah. You probably get that validation when you've matured a little bit. When you've ascended past socially constructed things little by little, you start to people start to kind of look at you different. You start to move a little different. People who haven't seen you in years start to go, there's something about you. You're just like, it's not, I don't want to say like, oh, exude confidence and you'll succeed just like that. It's so much more than just confidence. It's, it's, and it's so much more than not caring. It's understanding shame and rising above it. And us here at the Queers TM, us here at the Queers LLC, Man, we we understand shame so much. We understand it so well. And we're here to tell the younger ones, like, don't worry about this. You got this. I like it. The Queers LLC. Yeah, we're an LLC. We're a limited liability corporation. That's right. Get our stamp pad and our license in the mail. You can be a licensed queer, Dom. (laughs) Well, you can be a licensed queer, comma, Dom. You can also be a licensed queer, Dom, no comma. Oh, that's, that's another... Man, my name being Dom and moving in any circle at all that might have people into BDSM in it—that's that's a wealth of material. I could do I could do stand up on that, and I've never done stand up. I bet I li- literally put your name into the overview here, and when I think of Dom, the first thing I think of <laughs> is BDSM. Right. And I'm like, somebody could just be looking at this randomly, like, what is Mike doing? Is Mike like taking a class on? <laughs> restraints or something what's going on here that's one of my yeah that's one of my qualifications for being here i am a, a licensed uh a licensed dom uh, <laughs> I, I am also not one i like a little bit of everything and see people who have recognized shame and started to move past it also don't know when to shut up we give too much information all the time so we need to sometimes check ourselves because there is value to reading the room and that's going to be the title of my memoir. There's value to, to reading, reading the room. room. Well, this is um, or, a room yeah. you don't have to to read. <laughs> yeah, you can yeah, be your full self. Yeah, I think that there's a balance to strike for real, but that balance has to skew very much toward not giving a fuck and not feeling shame and moving past anything that might tell you not to be who you are. And what's coming to mind right now? Do the crazy weird thing. Someone else is trying to do the crazy weird thing, and they don't think they can. And but they, they see you doing courage. the crazy weird thing. Absolutely. You know, what made me come out, what made me finally realize I was not binary? Years of reading up on queer stuff, years of experiencing stuff, none of that did it for me. What put a, a concept to what I was and figuring it out was that I was in a really big D&D group, and there was a lot of non-binary and a lot of queer people in it. And eventually, the queers, I was like, TM, love D&D. We all we do. We do. This was like a big group of like 50 people. It was like a whole thing that some friends ran where it was like multiple groups going in tandem. It was That was crazy, but I'm not to get into that. Because of that, almost uh, no one got out straight. No one got out of that group straight or cis. Like everyone fell victim to the gay agenda. But the point is because I had so many people I could look at and go, look at the, the diversity of non-binary people. Like, why am I not allowing myself to, to be one? And the answer was, among other things, but if I could boil it down to one word, you know what the answer is going to be. Shame. Moral of the story, 
moral of the story i want to thank dom so much for their time and for their honesty as i thank all my guests for their time and their honesty and of course i want to thank you for listening because you have tons of options in terms of podcasts or other entertainment and you take the time to listen to detoxicity and i really really appreciate it you can find dom on instagram at ddom7b5 that is d-d-o-m Number seven, letter B, number five. I don't know what it means, but maybe if you reach out to Dom on Instagram, they'll explain it to you. Maybe they'll explain it to me too. We are currently dealing with some serious political shit right now. Uh, They're threatening to overturn Roe versus Wade and make it a state's decision as to uh, whether women have bodily autonomy when it comes to the children that they carry. I urge you to sign every petition you can, give money where you can, and uh, hope the government can get their shit together and make sure that uh, people have the right to their bodies as they see fit. Um, uh, this country seems to be going, uh, the U.S., uh, I should mention, for those of you who are listening who are not in the U.S., seems to be in a really weird place right now, and I'm hoping that it can all get figured out. Um, and I think in order for it to get figured out, it's going to take some conscious effort on our part, it's going to take some listening, some understanding, and uh, it's going to take some work. So hopefully we're, uh, at, at least those of us who uh, are on the side of right are in for that long haul. And um, once again, uh, donate to Planned Parenthood, donate to an abortion fund, Um, make sure that uh, the women in our lives and the women out of our lives have basic autonomy over their bodies. Thanks for listening to the Detoxicity Podcast. My name is Mike Joseph. Once again, if you want to find me online, hit me up on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy. I'm on Twitter intermittently at TizMikeJoseph. You can go to Facebook.com slash Detoxicity. You can email me detoxpod at gmail.com love to hear constructive criticism love to hear feedback would love if you are a potential guest or you know somebody who you think would be a potential guest please by all means reach out to me and remember if you enjoy this podcast subscribe rate comment do all of the things necessary to push this podcast up in the podcast rankings and get this into as many ears as possible tell a friend do whatever it is you need to do And uh, thank you once again for listening. I personally want to thank the following people for their support. Uh, Calvin Williams, Jacob Block, Jeff Giles, and Andy Grossman. Thank you very much. I hope all of you stay well, stay safe, and healthy. Until next time.